Let's do it right. Woohoo! Let's crush this shit. Okay. Hello. Hi. How's it going? Good. How are you today? I'm very good. Good. Uh, welcome to our first ever episode of the Family Crimecast. Uh, we are your hosts. I'm Mariah Honaker. And I'm Bob Honaker. And this is very exciting, is it not? Our yes, first official episode. I Let's mean, I, go. Yeah, I think we've been like waiting for this for a while now and here we are. We're going for it. We're Let, doing it. Let's do it. All right. So today, um, first, before we go into the case we're going to talk about, if this is your first time tuning in, I do recommend that you go back and listen to the introduction episode just so you can get a feel for who we are and what this podcast is about. Or don't do it. I don't really care. I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. Uh, what about me? You tell me all the time. Well, that's because I'm your boss. <laughs> and my daughter. Yeah. All in the same. Um, so today we're going to be focusing on my dad's first really high profile case that involves a reverend named James E. Wynn. And when I say reverend, you can probably guess where this is going. The case was the state versus the reverend James E. Wynn. It's an awful case. Uh, to give a brief summary about it, he was a pastor of the Mount Pisgah Baptist Temple Church in Asbury Park, New Jersey. And the Reverend was accused of sexually assaulting and molesting four young girls who were members of his congregation. So, you know, pretty depressing stuff. I think cases like this, when I hear about them, they're just the worst of the worst, and they truly show the evil that exists in this world. And how awful it can be. And it's it's really heartbreaking when you hear stories like this. And, I mean, it's heartbreaking to hear it when I listen to true crime podcasts about cases like this. But I can't even imagine what it's like to be there when it's all going down and, and taking down this information. And so I guess my first main question for you is, what's that like to work with children who are involved in cases like this? Well, Mariah, I have to say that these are the most difficult cases uh, for a prosecutor. In my entire tenure as a prosecutor, it was the only time frame that I was trying these cases that it really bothered me, that these were the only cases that I would literally bring home with me. I mean, I could go to a murder scene, I could go to an autopsy, I could go to interview witnesses, and I could leave most of that back at the office. But these type of cases, because you were dealing many times with very young victims, and at the time I was beginning to have a family myself, were cases that just stuck with you. And um, I can say that these type of cases for prosecutors are very, very tough. I can only imagine. And I think like for you being my dad, I mean, I always see you as this like happy-go-lucky person, aside from the fact when we did something to make you angry. But besides that, you know, you kind of always just had this great persona about you. You know, you were a family man. And and I mean, I sure didn't see it. You did a really good job of coming home and I didn't see you bringing it when you came to coach my t-ball games or, you know, come to watch any other sporting event I was involved in. I never really got that. Well, yeah, you had to, you know, put on a mask, so to speak, in regards to these type of cases. Uh, certainly, I didn't want, uh, you know, my friends or family to know 
the real trauma and emotional drain that these cases take on a prosecutor. But they do. You would ask any prosecutor. They, they, hate, they take their toll. But raising a family and, and, and actually doing the things you talked about alleviated the stress because I could be with my family and I knew uh, that my kids were involving themselves in different activities and uh, for the most part being happy kids. And that was important to me. Well, that's lovely. (laughs) So I guess what I want to start with while talking about this case is how did this case come about? What's the origin of it? How did this story start to be told that there was some, some things brewing and going on in this church? Well, in September of 1983, a couple of members of the congregation came to the prosecutor's office and met with detectives to outline uh, certain concerns that they had about the conduct of Reverend Wynn. And so those detectives, primarily Detective Barbara Coleman and Lieutenant Reggie Wilmore, uh, got involved in the investigation and they first began to interview people, but then identified four young Uh, girls in the congregation that uh, had accused the Reverend Wynne of molesting them in his private office in the church in Asbury Park. And so the steps of the investigation began to take the initial information, go out and find the alleged victims, and then corroborate their information through statements and any other evidence that could be produced. And what abuse did these girls endure? Well, the allegations were that Reverend Wynne, over that period of time, had actually hired these young girls to clean his office, uh, to run errands for him, to clean his uh, home, and he would pay them, you know, five, ten, fifteen dollars for this work. But each one of them, without question, were consistent in that there would be a pattern to this abuse, that he would ask them to sit on his lap, that he would kiss their neck, and that he would fondle them and touch them. And then it progressed where he would have them fondle him and touch him, and then it progressed to uh, sexual acts. So each one of those uh, type of activities, each girl was consistent in saying that this grooming of this behavior was what was happening to them. And how old were the girls at the time that they were abused? Well, at the time they were abused, they ranged in age from 9 to 14. So this was the period of time from 1979 to 1983. It seemed like it was a pretty tight community, this church. What did the community around that, what was their feeling as this was coming forward? Well, first of all, there was you know initial shock in the community that uh, Reverend Wynne was arrested. And then within the congregation of Mount Pisgah Baptist Church, there was a very, very serious divide of the congregation. I would say almost 50-50, that half of the congregation believed that he could do no wrong, that these girls uh, were not telling the truth, that somehow they may have been put up uh, to tell this story about him. And then the other half of the congregation believed these young girls and believed, in fact, that Reverend Wynne was involved in 
evil activity by abusing these young women. Okay, so after their stories are told, was he arrested, interviewed? Like, what was the process well, there? again, the investigation began in September. Okay. It continued through October of 1983. Mm-hmm. And then on November 4th, 1983, Reverend Wynn was arrested. Okay, and at that point, the press is starting to pick up on it, or there's little inklings a little bit before then, I feel like? Well, I think that the press became aware that the Reverend was under investigation. But as in most cases, and in our prosecutor's office, obviously we do not speak to the press when matters are under investigation. We decline any comment. But once he was arrested, then it became public knowledge Mm -hmm. that a prominent pastor of a significant congregation in Asbury Park uh, and also active in civic affairs in the city of Asbury Park was arrested for very serious crimes, which was the sexual assault of young parishioners. So obviously the press became very interested in the case. So for you, because it got so blown up, how do you handle that? Since it was like your first time, what what did you do to handle the press? Well, initially, when the press is involved in such a nature like this, you have to let them know what's going on. Because if you don't, then they're going to just go somewhere else and get somebody else's opinion of what the prosecutor... Right, they're going to choose their own narrative. They're going to play it how they want to play it. Exactly. So it's important that at least you provide a narrative to the press as to you know, what the case is about, what you intend to prove, and the fact that in, in this case, no matter how high in the community Reverend Wynn was admired, he still is accused of very serious offenses and we will do our very best to hold him accountable because we believed what these young girls were telling us. Let's get into the trial. So obviously going in, there's this complete divide between the congregation. What was it like stepping in first day of court, opening the courtroom doors? What what was the vibe? What were you feeling? Well, first of all, you have to understand that this courtroom was packed. There was not a seat to be had. And literally the congregation that was divided, divided themselves in the courtroom. Half of the congregation who supported Reverend Wynn sat on one side of the courtroom. The other half who did not support Reverend Wynn and believed these young girls sat on the other side. So as you walked into the courtroom, you could feel the tension in the air. You could almost literally cut it with a knife that everyone in that room was there to see what was going to happen. And so not only that, but then you had all the cameramen and uh, women and press (laughs) press reporters, you're very welcome. (laughs) And uh, so it was uh, quite, you know, a situation where you not only knew that you had to prepare your case and do it well, but you also had to understand that every eye in that courtroom was watching your every move. All right, so no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Plus, it was my first. I mean, I hadn't been, you know, uh, a trial attorney for that long. Yeah, I mean, like how? What's your status? Like, what? Are you, where are you at in your career so, right now? So, you know, I had my career. You know, I became an, a jury trial prosecutor in the summer of 1983. 
So I probably had, you know, three, four, five cases under my belt by the time that Reverend Wynn was charged. And then the trial was in July of 1984. Mm -hmm. So less than a year, I was a trial attorney in the Monmouth County Prosecutor's Office. And I, you know, I give credit to, you know, at the time, my trial team leader, Linda Kenny, for having confidence in me to try this case. She was head of the sex crimes unit at the time and first assistant, Paul Shiat, who was a great mentor uh, during my career as well. And to give me the opportunity to try this case. And it was not an easy case. I mean, it, the witnesses in this case basically were your evidence. There wasn't anybody else who saw what was going on. There wasn't, wasn't anybody else. There wasn't any physical evidence to corroborate their testimony. So it truly depended on those young girls. And that seems to be common. And granted, this is probably my information coming from watching Law & Order SVU. Right. But is that common in a cases like this that the main evidence at your trial is testimony? Yes. In these type of cases, it very much relies on testimony of the victim. And unfortunately, um, defense attorneys will make an issue with that to say whether or not testimony in and of itself mm -hmm. is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's always has to be confronted by a prosecutor to have these witnesses, number one, tell the truth, and number two, convince that uh, their testimony, that is their testimony before the jury, is to be believed. I just think that is so traumatic on so many different levels that these young girls had to go through this had to tell the story probably hundreds of times to whoever they first reported it to, to the detectives in the case, then to you, then to the grand jury, you know what I mean? And then at court, in front of camera, I can't think of a, nowhere else I'd rather be as a teenager. I think you're exactly right. Uh, living with a teenage daughter like yourself. Uh, was, what, rainbows and butterflies? <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, exactly. I was a delight. Okay? Yes, you were, you were a delicate flower, <laughs> that's for sure. But um, yeah, I mean, this was the last place they wanted to be in Freehold, New Jersey. Ugh, in, just kidding. In, just in, kidding. in the middle of, of July, testifying and having, you know, each and every word that they said, each and every move that they made scrutinized by everyone in that courtroom. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think, you know, absolutely. I would not want to be in those position, either would you. Mm -mm. Uh, but these young girls did testify. And although they did not always get a date right, or they did not always get a time right, they were unwavering in what happened, where it happened, and how they felt about what was happening to them. And that, to me, is the most important part. I was reading in some of the articles that it was like, yeah, like you mentioned, they forgot a date or they forgot if they were 12 or 13. I'm like, does that even matter? They were, as long as they remember what happened to them, why do they need to know if they were 12 or 13? It's a disgrace, disgusting atrocious thing that happened to them. You're really gonna, you're really gonna like badger them if it was a Tuesday or a Wednesday? Well, that's definitely, you know, what happened. I mean, they were intensely cross-examined by Charlie Frankel, who was at the time, you know, one of the best trial lawyers in Monmouth County, if not the state. He was known as the dean of the criminal defense attorneys. So he went after them 
on dates and times. And in his opening statement, he indicated that that these girls were put up uh, by the church elders who wanted to oust Reverend Wynne uh, in a conspiracy. They presented 15 to 20 witnesses, which were called character witnesses, ministers from other congregations within Monmouth County. Oh, yeah, bring in the ministers. Let's go. Just bring in all the ministers <laughs> they did. They to did. come give a good character, whatever, evaluation of another pastor and minister. There's school board officials, people from the welfare board, town officials, city officials testify as to his good character. But then ultimately, Reverend Wynn took the stand himself. And he, on direct examination, denied any involvement with these young girls. And one of the allegations was that he paid off one of the mothers to silence the investigation. Wow. And there was some evidence which I was able to use that established that he, in fact, did pay the mother. Of course, he said he didn't pay the mother for silencing her in regards to any investigation, but it was clear that he paid her. And it was also clear that there was an indication within the congregation that somehow allegations of some nature, maybe not describing fully what happened, had been settled within the church. So when you put those two and two together, number one, he paid her, and number two, something was settled. Sketchy. It raised the inference mm -hmm. that he was not telling the truth. And I think that resonated with the jury. Do you think that was like the turning point? Do you think that was just like at that point, were you really confident? Well, you're, you're never confident. <laughs> you're never confident. But on cross-examination, number one, you never really get to have that opportunity very often as a prosecutor. Mm -hmm. It's very rare where a defendant actually takes the stand. I was going to say, so, okay, from your perspective or experience, would you have had him testify? Well, if you uh, were his defense attorney, no. And since I've been a defense attorney in cases that I've tried, I, I've never put the defendant on the stand. I feel like it's a real, like, sociopathic move to want to do that, and he probably wanted to do that because he's, you know, the leader of this church. I mean, he was probably a great speaker, and he probably thought because he's a sociopath that he could persuade the jury to follow him like his con half his congregation kept following him saying he has done no wrong he's our leader you know what i mean yeah well no that's exactly true because at one point i asked him uh, when he paid her why he paid her and he said because she was in distress and then he said you can ask many people in my congregation that I've helped people in distress and the congregation that supported them all yelled amen oh my god and so okay, I looked, that, wait, that real quick that is not normal that is not normal for any pastor priest minister to pay the people who go to their church that is not yes give them guidance do all that stuff. it's not normal for somebody in that position to pay well, that was that was my point uh, on cross examination. That you know, you can give them advice, you can give them counsel, but to pay them money, in particularly in a situation where there is some suspicion of wrongdoing, really did not make him look good. And I got him to admit that uh, he paid her and she was in distress, 
And I asked, was she in distress because of the fact that you had molested her young daughters? Burn. And, you know, he sat there. Of course, he answered no, but I don't think that no resonated with the jury. Yeah, I think at that point, it coming out that he paid a parent of a child he molested, I just feel like there's just no going back from that. So, after that, I mean... The jury's out at this point. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the defense wrapped up their case after Reverend Wynn testified. And then we, uh, Mr. Frankel and I, summed up to the jury criminal cases. The defense goes first. And the summation essentially was that, you know, this was not true, that he was a good man, and that none of this should ever have seen the light of day because it wasn't true. And my final point to the jury is you have to look at these young girls and establish that they would have to have some type of motivation to come here and lie. And there was not a reason for them to do that. The only reason why they were here was to tell the truth. And then the case went to the jury. So I want to know before the jury comes back in any case, or this case, what are you feeling? Like, what's going through your mind? <laughs> what's going through your gut? Well, I don't think there's anything left in my gut, uh, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. You always second-guess yourself. You always kind of think, well, maybe I should have done that, or maybe I should have said this. Mm-hmm. I think most trial attorneys have that same experience. Um, but you just sit, and you wait, and... It is, no matter how short or how long a period of time it is, it is a lonely wait. It is a lonely wait. So what was the verdict? So the jury was out less than five hours, which uh, I think is... uh, That's very quick. uh, I I don't know. You tell me. Is that quick? That seems uh, quick to me. Well, with four victims, with 12 charges in the indictment, uh, including very serious charges, aggravated sexual assault and sexual assault. Five hours, to me, was a very quick verdict. So I wasn't too sure with a quick verdict uh, what the outcome would be. I feel like it could either, when they're quick, you're really like, all right, it could come back not well, guilty or could come back guilty. Like, there's kind of... Yeah. Could so, go either way. Yeah, I mean, when you think about O.J. Simpson, that came back very quick, and people were like, what's going to happen? And... O.J. Simpson came back not guilty, so you're not too sure as to what's going to happen. And then the jury came back, and the first charge that they pronounced a verdict was for aggravated sexual assault guilty. And I knew right then and there that he was exposed to a significant period of time in jail. And ultimately, well, well he was, deserved. And ultimately, he was convicted of I think seven out of the twelve counts and exposed him to up to 80 years in jail for aggregate of all the charges. All that, you know, obviously wouldn't have happened, but that's what he faced. All right. So after he's convicted, isn't there some sort of law in New Jersey with sexual offenders like this? They have to go meet with a psychiatrist or? Yes. In New Jersey, if you're convicted of a a sexual offense or you plead guilty to a sexual offense, you have to be evaluated by the Adult Diagnostic and Treatment Center which is in Avenel, New Jersey. An evaluation is conducted by a psychiatrist. Tests are given to the person, and that evaluation determines whether or not you're a compulsive and repetitive sex offender. And that would determine uh, whether or not you would go to state prison or you would actually go to the Avenel facility to be treated if you were a compulsive and repetitive sex offender. 
This is a shock to a, a lot of people in his congregation who supported him. The evaluation came back and he was deemed a compulsive, repetitive sex offender, that he had done this more than once, and God knows how many times he had done it. Wow. And were you surprised by that no. evaluation? No. I mean, my experience was that uh, an individual who involved himself with uh, multiple victims probably had many more. And, uh, you know, again, a credit to these young girls to come forward and stop the abuse of future young girls that could have occurred um, had they not come forward. Absolutely. And I think that, I mean, I want to give major kudos to the prosecutor's office for in 1984, you know, not only believing these young girls, but following it through from start to finish and, you know, putting somebody very, very, very bad away for a long time. Oh yeah, it was a big credit. We had, you know, investigator Barbara Coleman and Lieutenant Reggie Wilmore worked very hard in the case, putting it together. And then the team that handled the case did a great job and unfortunately they had a, a young prosecutor <laughs> who was uh, dedicated to this particular case and saw it through to the end. That's That's awesome. So, you know, as awful as this case is, I feel like in every bad situation, there is some sort of positive thing to come out of it. What would you say the positive thing to come out of this case was? One thing was that after this case, uh, I got my first promotion in the office. I oh, yeah. I became director of the... Moving on up? I started to move on up. I became director of the Child Abuse and Sex Crimes Unit in the office. So I was... Dun, dun. Uh, yeah, I was head of, uh, what is it, Law and Order? Yes, uh, it's like not special maybe victims. My, maybe unit. my favorite show that I watch every single night. So that was a that was a nice positive thing, and I began to deal pretty much extensively with these type of cases. Those type of cases again uh, stick with you, and I was there for about two years doing that. But I followed through with the with Prosecutor K to establish the Monmouth County Child Abuse Task Force which over the next 20 years developed uh, interdisciplinary relationships with other uh, agencies to deal with the issue of child abuse and ultimately building a child advocacy center for young victims to come forward and not be traumatized like we discussed before of mm -hmm. giving a statement over and over, but coming to a safe place to tell somebody what happened and for have them to be believed. That's so, so important, and that really is a positive thing to come out of this ugly situation. Yes, it was. It had some good aspects, and I think uh, it, it, these aspects continue today uh, with the fine work that uh, detectives and prosecutors do uh, with child abuse and child sexual abuse victims. Great. All I think right. that's an excellent place to end oh great i'm glad hey we got the first one in the bank i right? know the first ever episode thank you so much for listening to anybody who has started following us uh thank you so much we appreciate all the support you can listen to us on itunes spotify and stitcher we're now on start figuring it out as we go <laughs> did we but, get anybody to listen to us yet or no just a couple of people <laughs> i think we got, we got some streams here and there okay 
We'll keep you updated on our Instagram. That's our main form of social right now. Our Instagram is Family Crime Cast. That's the handle. We also have a Gmail account we set up. It's familycrimecast at gmail.com. Feel free to email us questions. If you have any tidbits about some cases my dad has worked on, this case we just discussed, feel free to reach out. Just send us a line. Uh, we want to hear from you guys. If you have feedback, if you want to tell us how much you hate us, that's cool too. Um, <laughs> or how much you love us. Yeah. I mean, more importantly, how much you love us. And I think that's it. Thank you so much for tuning in. You're right. I love you, right? I love you too, Dad. Mm-hmm.